I rode past towns in their black sleep to come here, to come here, to come here. is dark with old pleasures. I'm Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Burdens, the podcast where I share one of my stories every month. This month, you're going to hear the story from which I got the title for the podcast, a story entitled Burden. I like this old word for prophecies because it highlights the weight of prophecy. Some people fantasize over what it would be like to be a prophet or to hear the voice of God and they think it would be it would make life so much more meaningful so much easier it would make things so much clearer but I'm not so sure they're thinking it all the way through because being a prophet is hard and all you have to do is read the stories in the Old Testament to know this stories of Elijah Elisha Jeremiah Ezekiel and all the others They paid a a big price for being a prophet. So the word burden suits prophecies for two reasons. Number one, it talks about the, the weight, the heaviness, the trouble, the struggle. But it also speaks of the significance and the meaning that is embedded in the message the prophets carry. I don't know if you've ever dreamed about being a prophet or ever wished that God would just come out and speak to you, but hopefully this story helps you put yourself in the prophet's shoes. It makes you think and wonder what it would be like and see that it's not all roses, that it can be kind of difficult, extremely difficult actually. Take a listen and see what you think. Burden Caleb lived in dread of falling asleep. He rarely slept until dawn before some black shade shuddered him awake in a twisted mess of damp sheets, although he really couldn't blame the nightmares. He woke himself up with his own screams, prolonged, transient screams that climbed out of the depths of his subconscious into the real world. His wife left him years ago. It makes no sense for both of us to lose sleep every night, she said. She had become as anxious about going to bed as Caleb. She complained that he made her heart leap out of her chest every night, waking her up screaming like an evil spirit and flailing at her with his clenched fists while fighting the monsters in his ghastly dreams. One night Caleb awoke with his hands around her throat. He felt sick every time he thought about her gasping for breath with both of his hands shaking her by the neck. He begged her to forgive him explaining that he had been caught up in some dreamy trance, convinced she was some threat to his safety instead of his wife. That was their last night together. The next day, she packed her bags and went home to her mother and father. 
Maybe it was for the best. She would die childless, but at least she would not die choking in the grip of her maniac husband. Caleb's wife was not the only one who noticed his problem. On more than one occasion, concerned pedestrians passed by his window in the early morning, rapped at his door until he came, and assured them, embarrassed, that he suffered from night terrors, and that no, he had not been attacked by a thief who had broken into his home, beaten him senseless, and stolen his money. His dreams were recurring, and they were always nightmares. In the latest iteration, he dreamed that a tower held the sky like a solitary pillar supporting the world, and he was trapped in some vast, hellish cellar underneath. He could not see the real world's blue skies, buzzing commerce, and people. He could not see families or hear laughter. He could not smell the aroma of freshly baked bread or hear the sea lapping at the shore. All he could see was the cloudy, gray underbelly of a life far away. He felt heat radiating through his sandals. Where was he? In every direction he saw nothing but a lifeless, ashy landscape. No vegetation, no animals, no people, not even a cockroach. Hot wind chapped his lips and burned his cheeks, and he blinked and tried to clear his vision, but he only made matters worse because the debris or gravel or whatever it was scratched his eyes when he rubbed them. He squinted upwards, but he couldn't see the top of the tower. It stretched for what seemed like miles into the sky. No windows or supporting structures surrounded it. From outside, it looked like a perfect cylinder, bolting straight up from its foundations. He stared at its smooth walls, amazed. The builders, whoever they were, must have constructed it from the inside, working their way up using scaffolding and staircases. The tower was impressive. It held the whole world. But Caleb couldn't shake the thought that something wasn't right. He felt a sinking, hopeless feeling instead of admiration. He couldn't explain why, but the looming tower filled his heart with disappointment. Something was all wrong, like maybe it shouldn't have been there. Maybe he shouldn't be there. Who had thrown him into this flimsy netherworld? Caleb didn't know where to go or what to do. He looked around trying to find a sign or a road or someone he could ask. A bolted door sat silently at the base of the tower. He tried pulling on its heavy ring in vain and then used it to knock against the thick wood. Silence. He tried again, knowing no one would answer. Was he stuck outside this tower, alone? Why was he here? He licked his parched lips with a thirsty tongue. If he didn't find help soon, he would die out here. Suddenly Caleb's blood ran cold, and goose flesh crawled up his arms and on the back of his neck. Even though he could see for miles in every direction, and he had taken a good look around before knocking on the door, he felt a pair of tired eyes searching him. Yes, someone was standing close behind him. He turned to see a frail old woman smiling in a black hooded cloak. He saw the two smooth pink rims of her gums. Where did you come from? he asked in surprise. She opened her mouth to speak, but he never heard what she said because at the same time thunder rolled overhead. Or was it the tower? The ground began to quake. He looked up to see the woman turning to go, still smiling, 
She waved over her stooped shoulders as she walked away into the endless hellscape. Wait, he cried. Come back. Where am I? What's happening? He begged her desperately to help him until he realized he couldn't see her anymore. She had vanished as quickly as she had appeared. Then dust and debris began falling from the sky, followed by stones and chunks of mortar. He realized it was coming from the tower. The pieces started falling more frequently and in greater amounts, and he could see the whole tower swaying back and forth. He desperately looked for shelter, but there was nowhere to hide. Other things started falling, bundles of grain, wagons, pieces of silver and gold, barrels of wine, chairs, and tools. He watched a doll made of corn silk fall. Then he heard the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of cattle. Animals fell, their bodies hitting the ground with a tremendous thud. Then came men, women, and children, babies. He watched all this, wishing something would drop on him and kill him, so he did not have to witness the falling objects, but somehow he was spared. The ground shook under his feet, with each stone, each body, each piece of the tower, but it all fell around him in piles, never on him. Finally the tower collapsed, sending shockwaves that made the ground buck and toss, and then he woke up. If these visions had only been a phase, he might have been able to endure them, but they had been plaguing him for years now. Their permanence had an isolating effect on him, shoving him into a chink between his own private dream world and his waking life, never fully a part of one or the other, always the guest, never at home. And that was not all. As if the restless nights and the terror were not enough, Caleb also had to deal with an accompanying impulse to speak the dreams. At some point he discovered that he could get a recurring vision to stop harassing him, by introducing it to the waking world, as one would arrange a meeting between friends from two separate parts of life, but these introductions got him into trouble. They always left Caleb wishing he had kept his mouth shut, even if it meant pinning his jaws together or cutting out his tongue. People didn't like his dreams, especially those who held positions of power. The priest, who was most annoyed by them, reported his concerns about the troublemaker, that was his pet name for Caleb, to the king. Without the priest there to interpret Caleb's visions, the king might have been too dense to understand them as anything more than the absurd ravings of a madman. But the priest was as intelligent as he was dangerous. He detected insurrection and accusations of corruption behind the troublemakers, wild nightmares, and flavored his reports of Caleb's public addresses with these interpretations. Then it was the stocks for Caleb, or the whip, or solitary confinement, without due process or proper judicial proceedings, no trial, no witnesses, just immediate punishment, the sentence determined by the priest alone. Caleb hated the priest, but the dark clouds of the injustices he suffered had a silver lining because, in the king's dungeon, sleeping on the cold, damp stone floor, Caleb finally rested. He made up for months of sleep deprivation in prison, sleeping twelve or more hours at a time, during one period of confinement, he missed an entire day and awoke expecting to see blue skies out of his window, but finding instead, to his surprise, the darkness of early morning the day after. These moments of respite were short-lived, though, and the cycle repeated itself with a new nighttime specter that kept him tossing and sweating every night. 
Caleb knew a way out. He had been hesitant to try it because he had acquired this information from a forbidden source, the enchantress who lived in the woods. Nobody knew how old she was, and she claimed she could speak with the dead, which was unlawful. Caleb visited her on an impulse in a moment of weakness, and she taught him how to suppress his dreams. However, by the time he arrived home, he decided not to follow her advice. Better to face the threats of dreamy apparitions and corrupt public officials than the wrath of God. One morning, however, after a long night of tossing and turning, Caleb awoke, breathing hard, his heart racing, and his throat sore from screaming. Frustrated, he threw off his blankets, rolled off the pallet, and tried to stand, but a thudding commenced in his head, and a black curtain began to close, so he lay back down until he could recover. He lay there thinking he couldn't live like this anymore. He had to take matters into his own hands. Nobody was going to save him. Caleb had to face his problem alone. His parents were dead, his wife had left him, and the priest threw him in prison. Not even God pitied him. He had prayed for peace and asked God to release him, but still the dreams plagued him. Why did he have to dream these dreams? He couldn't remember signing a contract. He felt more like a tool than a person. That's all he was, a hammer to beat the king's head. But he was too soft to be God's hammer. He was more lead than iron, misshapen by the blows. The sages said even the lowest sinner could turn to God, no matter what they had done. Even after one's own mother turns her back on him, he still had God. At least that is what they said. But God wasn't answering Caleb's prayers. He would have to solve this problem alone. Forbidden or not, he decided to use the secret he learned from the enchantress. Caleb dressed and ate a breakfast of dates and stale bread and set out for the docks. A storm had swept the sky clean the night before, and it was a bright morning. Songbirds accompanied children's laughter, and several couples strolled arm in arm along the streets surrounding the city. Caleb walked with them, but he wasn't really there. He was like an apparition whose true home was at the base of the crumbling tower. Every dream was like that with Caleb. He carried them like a burden. He could speak them and they would depart for a time, but he wasn't going to do that anymore. No way. He would rather live the rest of his life in the shadow of the looming tower, with rocks and plaster and cows showering around him than speak, let them whip someone else and throw him into a pit or put his feet in stocks. He passed the city gates and saw the elders putting another poor family out of their home. He stopped for a moment and fell in with the crowd of witnesses who were watching the proceedings. The elder sat on a platform under a canopy in the cobblestone courtyard between the outer gate and the inner gate of the city. Before them stood a rich landowner on one side and a farmer in shabby clothing on the other, who no doubt owed the other man money. Looks like someone's about to acquire some more free labor, Caleb thought to himself. The trial was a sham. Caleb knew the landowner had greased the elder's pockets before the trial began. The farmer didn't stand a chance, and he knew it. He spoke only when ordered, and stood there waiting for it to happen. His tired arms hung by the threads of his shoulders as his eyes followed a fly jumping off a piece of rotten fruit lying on the courtyard. The farmer's wife and children stared at the proceedings with empty eyes. Everyone knew it was a sham. The people had come to accept injustice as a way of life, just another inconvenience like not having enough rain or having to eat when hungry. 
Caleb walked on, leaving the city leaders to their dirty work. He followed the city wall for a mile or so. When the docks came into view, he followed the gentle slope toward the sea. The breeze picked up and his ears filled with the sounds of the waves and gulls crying. Most of the boats were out for the day. He could see a few on the horizon, and the docks were almost empty. He knew, however, that the fishermen would be there. He always worked at night. Caleb expected to find him packing his gear and getting ready to go home to his wife, a hot breakfast, and a comfortable bed. He found the dock he was seeking and strolled down its boarded planks to the boat. He caught the fisherman straddling the bow while rolling up some of the rigging he used for fishing. He was stripped to the waist, and his big brown shoulders shimmered and rolled in the morning sun. The boat rocked in rhythm with the waves, squeaking against the dock, the primal friction of motion and inertia. "'Got any leftovers today?' Caleb asked. "'What's that?' the fisherman asked. "'Leftovers, you know, scraps of fish or bait you couldn't use?' Caleb stepped lightly into the boat and looked into one of the barrels lashed onto the gunwale. "'What do you want with that?' the fisherman asked. "'That's my business. Do you have any or not?' The fisherman studied Caleb for a beat. "'Sure, just give me a second, he said. He finished rolling up the rigging and stepped off the bow. He fetched a bucket from the stern and handed it to Caleb. Flies buzzed excitedly around the opening, and the warm smell of decay came from inside. I'm through with it anyhow. Thanks, said Caleb, turning to go. Is everything all right? asked the fisherman. You don't look so good. I'm fine. Don't worry about it, answered Caleb. Hey, I want my bucket back. I'll be back for a refill, said Caleb, who hopped out of the boat and strode briskly down the dock. When he reached the other end, he looked back and saw the fisherman still watching him. He returned a wave and headed back toward the city. As he walked home, Caleb inspected his catch of the day. Inside the bucket, several lidless eyes stared back at him. The bucket was full of fish heads, tails, fins, and guts. More than enough, he thought. He walked home quickly, trying not to attract attention, although this was hard because while he might have been able to avoid being seen, there was nothing he could do about the smell. Everyone he passed on the streets followed him with their eyes, watching especially the fly-infested bucket swinging by his side. They whispered to one another with nauseated looks on their faces as he walked past them. Caleb didn't care what they thought. He just wanted to be left alone when he was awake and when he was asleep. When he reached home, he walked out to the field behind his house, his eyes carefully examining the grass. Finally, he found what he was looking for, gathered a bunch in his hands, and went into the house. Inside, he ground some of the wormwood and hyssop together with a little garlic. This he set aside. He scooped a handful of fish parts out of the bucket, set them on the table, and covered them with a cloth. Then he beat the fish with a stone into a thick pulp. Caleb lifted the cloth to inspect his work. The fish had become a smelly, white, gelatinous lump. He fought for control as his stomach turned a notch and his eyes watered. He added the garlic, herbs, fish, and a little water into a bowl and stirred the ingredients until they were thoroughly mixed. Then he took a deep breath and raised the bowl to his lips. His hands shook as he tipped the bowl back and the thick, noxious mixture rolled into his mouth. Despite his best efforts to pulverize the fish, it still had a lumpy texture. 
He could feel bones raking his throat as the potion slid down to his stomach. Caleb swallowed hard. He gagged, but he kept everything down. Caleb lay down on his pallet. The mixture sat on his stomach like a stone. It made him ill, but he welcomed the nausea. Rotten fish was a fitting meal for a pitiful fool. He lay there alone, sick and sweating, but he could sleep, and he would not dream. For several weeks, Caleb returned to the docks for more fish, and each time the puzzled fisherman complied with his request for his leftover bait. One morning, however, the fisherman changed the routine. I'll give you this delicious steaming bucket of guts on one condition, he said, that you accompany me on my run tonight. Caleb's shoulders slumped, and his face twisted into a look of agony. Oh, come on, it won't be that bad. I could use the company and the water will do you good. Can't you just give me the fish? No, this is not negotiable. Either go out with me tonight, or go home empty-handed. Caleb thought about this for a moment, then leaped from the dock into the boat, resigned to his fate. I'll just set this here. This boat is smelly enough as it is, the fisherman said, reaching over the hull and setting the bucket of fish scraps onto the dock. They won't go anywhere. I get seasick, Caleb warned. Truthfully, he was sick every day, something the fisherman knew better than Caleb realized. His pale, sweaty complexion made it obvious. But the fisherman worried more about the look of pained indifference on Caleb's face, the tired eyes, blank stare, loose jaws, and stooped shoulders. He had given up, and the fisherman wanted to know what he had turned his back on and why. You'll get used to it, the fisherman said, while hauling anchor and setting sail. I have a feeling we're going to get lucky tonight. There was just enough light left in the evening sky for Caleb to make out three clouds scarcely larger than his hand over the hills to the east. The water lay before them smooth as glass, and the fisherman's expert hand guided the rudder's blade as it cut its way toward the depths where the fish were waiting. Caleb had to admit that the water was good for him. Out here on the sea... There were no ears besides his and the fisherman's. No one to debate and argue with. No one to curse and be cursed. No priest to shove him and slap his face to shut him up. The fisherman was a good listener. He didn't seem opinionated except when it came to good fishing spots and Caleb's mental health. He didn't seem to care about politics or religion. Out here away from the city, cut off from the land, a man had a chance to mend which might have explained the certainty in the fisherman's movements and the kindness in his eyes. The fisherman placed Caleb at the oars while he manned the tiller. The oars pulled hard against the thole pins, straining Caleb's back with every stroke. Caleb enjoyed concentrating solely upon the movement of the oars, pulling them back against the sea's heavy waters, lifting the dripping paddles out of the waves, pushing them forward and plunging them in again, repeating the cycle. The rhythm of rowing had a meditative effect upon him. He knew he would be sore the next day, but he liked the feeling of the night air blowing on his face. Something tight inside him opened slightly, just enough for him to feel it, but not enough to release the burden. It still lay coiled, sleeping within him, drunk with the potion, but alive, waiting for him to relax, and then it would pounce. No matter how sick it made him, no matter how heavy the burden, he would hold it in. He would not speak. The fisherman opened the lateen sail and aimed the rudder toward his usual location, about 15 to 20 miles offshore. 
They reached their destination at about first watch. The fisherman fetched a large casting net from the stern and checked every square inch for tears needing mending. This was unnecessary since he had inspected his nets the day before, but years of fishing had taught him certain habits he could not escape, no matter how unnecessary or time-consuming they were. Drop those drift anchors overboard, he ordered. Caleb would not have known who he was talking to if he had not been the only other man in the boat. The fisherman was a different man on the sea than he was on the docks. Fishing was serious business, and he did not have time now for idle chat or pleasantries. The fisherman tossed the round casting net overboard. While he waited for the weights on the head rope to drift to the sea floor, he stripped off his clothes. After he had given the net its time, he dove in to retrieve it, completely disappearing out of sight longer than it seemed a man without gills could stand. Eventually, he emerged with a flopping net. He climbed into the boat, sorted out the tilapia, and cast the unwanted specimens into the water. Then he repeated his ritual again and again, so many times Caleb lost count. Caleb understood now why the fisherman seemed impatient with him sometimes. The work was exhausting, but it was profitable, and after several hours, the boat was hopping with fish. Don't you think we have enough? Caleb asked. We've still got a little time till morning. Let's stay out a few more hours. Caleb stretched and rubbed his shoulders. He felt good earlier, but the bile was starting to rise in that familiar way, and he was beginning to feel like he might throw up. Is it just me, or is the water getting choppy? asked Caleb. It's fine, said the fisherman, sitting down next to Caleb for a breather. He was still naked, and Caleb felt uncomfortable. What do you do with all those rotten heads and guts anyway? the fisherman asked suddenly. Why do you care? I don't know. It's strange. There's no use for them. I'm curious. I'd rather not say. Fine by me, said the fisherman. I'd just throw them away if I wasn't keeping them for you. It doesn't matter to me who eats them, whether it's a catfish or some crazy fool. I'm not crazy, said Caleb. What are you doing to yourself, Caleb? You're always alone doing God knows what in that shack outside of town. You look like death warmed over. You don't take care of yourself or wash your clothes. At least I'm wearing clothes. I'm working, said the fisherman, enjoying Caleb's embarrassment. Besides, you're naked too, you just don't know it. What? said Caleb, self-consciously pulling the collar of his tunic closed. I see right through you, Caleb. You think you have everybody fooled think you're hiding out, but I see you. I know what you're up to. And what's that? Caleb asked. He tried to make his voice sound puzzled when he posed this question, but it came out sounding like someone trying too hard to sound clueless. He knew the fisherman could see him. Caleb always grumbled about being alone, about how nobody cared. Why was he so evasive now that someone showed a genuine interest in him? You don't know me, Caleb said. No one does, so let's just finish up and sail back to shore. I know more than you think, the fisherman said, pulling on his tunic. My grandfather was like you. He saw things, visions. My parents hated it when he told me his dreams. He embarrassed them, and they were afraid he might influence me. One day, on my way home from playing in the fields, I heard shouting coming from the house. My father was yelling at him. I don't ever want to see you again, he said. You're a disgrace. That was the last time I saw my grandfather. Whether it was real or not, he saw things others couldn't understand. They wouldn't understand. Fantastic things. 
frightening things. He made them uncomfortable, so they sent him away to die somewhere alone. I don't even know if he received a decent burial. I couldn't help him, but I can help you if you'll just talk to me. You don't have to wind up like him. I won't wind up like him. I've made sure of that, Caleb said. How's that? By poisoning yourself with rotten gills and guts and God knows what else? Caleb watched the moon's curved white legs skip along the waves. People speak of truth as if it were royalty riding on our shoulders, as if it would be an honor to carry it. I'll tell you what the truth really is. It's something nobody really wants to hear. Truth is nightmare. We try to lock it away in dark corners so we can ignore it, but if we sit still long enough it breaks free and haunts the deep chambers of our minds. You speak with a friend, you keep the conversation away from anything important, talk about taxes, games, construction, whatever. Your friend leaves, and you're alone. Then truth spreads its awful wings and casts a shadow over your trivial thoughts. Or you lie down to sleep because you must. Think about it. The perfect man would not have to rest, but God built a flaw in us, the need for sleep. So we must lie down every night in darkness without our dear distractions, alone with our thoughts. Then truth comes to us in our dreams. We speak nobly of truth, but we cower in fear when it visits. Nobody really cares about the truth. I'll tell you what truth is. It's not royalty. It's not a gift. It's a burden. You can't mean that, said the fisherman. Truth is reality. It's the way things are, whether we accept it or not. Caleb, you are a rare specimen. These dreams, they reveal what's real. Nothing is more important than that. Don't you see? Besides, you can't deny your calling. You're a dreamer. That's who you are. And dead fish aren't going to change that. The dreams haven't gone anywhere. You just haven't had them in a while because you haven't been sleeping. Eventually, you will have to sleep, and they will return. Not if I can help it, said Caleb. You know something? The fisherman spoke to Caleb's profile as his face stubbornly focused on the sea. I don't think you really eat those fish parts to suppress your dreams. I think you're punishing yourself. You've received visions, but you'd rather believe a petty priest who is only interested in silver and power. He tells you you're nothing, and you believe him, so you make yourself sick. Look, Caleb, the people are suffering. You can help them, and they will support you. I will support you. You don't have to die alone. Caleb turned to the fisherman. Look, I'm fine, okay? I'm not going to die alone. I'm going to throw up, though, so can we please go ashore? The fisherman sighed and slapped his thighs. Whatever you say. The fisherman stood and noticed that while they had been talking, the wind had picked up and the boat had begun to rock. A gale blew in from the northeast, too forceful to risk hoisting the sail. Taking the oars, the fisherman said, We'd better head for the nearest lee and wait this out. It doesn't look like we're going to have enough time to reach home before this gets bad. But within minutes, a howling wind nearly picked the men off their feet. Powerful gusts funneled through deep gorges and struck the lake with an incredible force. Torrents of rain fell in sheets. Waves picked them up and slung them down, leaving the men dizzy and disoriented. The change came suddenly as if their boat had somehow transported itself from a clear evening in summer to a fierce rainstorm in the spring of the next year. It was impossible to determine which way the wind was blowing. 
The battling gusts churned the water in every direction, so that the boat tossed this way and that. Caleb, whose stomach had already been challenging his ability to hold down his supper, finally succumbed to the boat's maniacal rocking, leaned over the gunwale, and retched. He fought to hold on to consciousness. The blackness wanted him, and kept closing its fist on his mind. Caleb summoned all the strength he had left to hold off its impervious grip. The fisherman vainly continued his quest for shelter, but the rain and the disorienting motions of the boat made navigation impossible. The two men stood ten feet apart, but they could barely see one another. Sighting land was impossible. The waves pitched the boat high and then dropped it at incredible speeds, tossing the men like wheat in a winnowing fan. The storm seemed to penetrate deeply into the sea, as if God himself plunged his giant finger into its depths and stirred. By pulling on ropes, fixtures, and whatever else he could grasp onto, the fisherman fought his way over to Caleb, who was holding onto the gunwale, nauseated and retching. Don't worry, he cried. I've been through my share of squalls like this. It will soon pass. Just hold on. We'll be out of this soon. Caleb nodded and tried to smile, but the expression he managed fell somewhere between dysentery and despondency. Suddenly the boat jolted, spilling Caleb forward onto his knees, and he heard a horrible sound of wood cracking above the roaring din of the wind and the waves. He knew immediately that the boat had run aground, although they should not have been anywhere near shore. Caleb managed to get back onto his feet, but as soon as he regained his balance, the sea pulled the boat back from whatever they hit, and he stumbled almost falling backward. Water rushed into the boat, and Caleb tried to ask the fishermen what they should do next, but before he was able to shout the question, the waves jerked them back toward the obstacle again, harder this time, and ejected Caleb and the fishermen out of the boat into the sea. Water stung Caleb's eyes and filled his ears with a dull pressure. Unable to fight the instinct to gasp for air, he opened his mouth and sucked water instead of taking a breath. He fought frantically for the surface. Finally, he managed to burst out of the waves for a moment. He desperately wanted to gulp air, but because there was so much water in his lungs, all he could manage to do was make a strained, rattling sound before the waves pulled him under again. Although he was underwater for only a few seconds, it was enough time for him to think a thousand thoughts. He thought of the lidless eyes staring at him from his bucket, calm and emotionless, alongside dismembered gills, tails, and other fish parts, not necessarily from the same fish. He thought about how weird it would be if his eyes rolled around in some old bucket with another man's arm, and the idea made him feel sorry for the fish he had ground up and swallowed. Those eyes in the bucket had once searched these waters. The gills had breathed the water that was now drowning him. Down under the water, fish lived comfortably in a world made for them, while men who couldn't survive more than five minutes underwater hunted them from above, floating in the world above. Which world was real? Who could say water didn't matter more than land? At least it wasn't populated with the liars and manipulators who reigned the air and the soil above. The truth was, both worlds were a part of something larger than themselves, a universe neither side fully embodied. They were merely parts of a whole, helping complete the real world. Water and air were both real, and they needed one another to survive. Exhausted, Caleb kicked and thrashed, trying to regain his equilibrium, and finally surfaced. 
He looked vainly for the fisherman as he treaded water and tried to get his bearings. He had been thrown a distance of thirty yards, but he could still make out the battered boat perched in a strange lopsided position. The waves chopped at its broken hull, but it remained stationary. Part of it was under water, but the bow pointed upwards, implicating the sky, and a good part of the deck after the mast was above the water. Caleb guessed it must have gotten stuck on something. The sight of the boat had distracted him for a moment, but his mind quickly returned to his predicament. He had never been a very good swimmer. Chilly depths enveloped him, and panic gripped his heart as he thought about his feet kicking eighty feet from the bottom of the sea. He fought the fear and swam furiously, reaching the boat just before he exhausted the little strength he had left. His fingers gripped the hull of the boat, and he rested, panting and hanging on for dear life. Suddenly he realized his feet were standing on the object that had pitched them into the sea, and now suspended his boat halfway into the air. He could tell that it was a submerged rock structure rising from the sea floor to within a few feet from the water's surface. He had heard about these mysterious cone-shaped piles at the docks, ancient underwater cairns of unknown origins. Some said they were ancient fish nurseries, but others spoke of long-forgotten sub-aquatic tombs belonging to great kings, or earthquakes that pushed proud cities into the watery depths. Caleb had no idea what it was, but he was glad to have a foothold to weather the storm. He saw no sign of the fisherman. What had become of him? Caleb worried. But he reminded himself that the fisherman was an excellent swimmer. He couldn't have been far away. For all Caleb knew, he was hanging on to the other side of the boat. He reminded himself that he wasn't thinking straight. The storm had bludgeoned his senses so badly, the fisherman could have been within an arm's breadth, and Caleb would not have known it. He pondered the absurdity of his position. How did he end up in the middle of the sea, clinging to this awful wreck, standing tiptoe on a forgotten underwater pile of rocks? Why couldn't he be left alone? If he wasn't tossing and turning on his bed with night sweats and dreams, he was getting a beating from the priest in the public square, or drowning in the middle of the sea. What did he do to deserve this? Why me, he screamed. Why do you haunt me in my sleep? Why ask me to question kings? Why do I have to scold the elders and the priests? Choose someone else. Let another poor sap suffer the bludgeons of your favor. The wind howled in his ears. The sea sprayed and spat in his eyes, but he was seeing clearly. The sea sickness helped clear his body of the poison he had been drinking. The fog had cleared, and he felt sober and light. Minutes, maybe hours later, he didn't know how long, the storm rolled away. Caleb was surprised to see land within a few hundred feet from the wreckage. Having regained his strength, he took a wooden plank from the boat under his forearms and kicked his way toward the shore. He couldn't be sure what it was at first, but his eyes made out a long form stretched out in the sand. As he came closer, he recognized it was the fisherman lying on his back. He was still, and sometimes the waves lapped at his face. Caleb reached shore and dropped to his knees next to the fisherman. He hovered over him, looking for signs of life. He could see that the fisherman had been bleeding badly from a cut on his right thigh, but he was still breathing. He took the fisherman's chin and moved his head left and right, carefully at first, then more aggressively when he didn't respond. Wake up, he cried, and he slapped the fisherman on his face. 
the fisherman moaned. Wake up, you stubborn fool, Caleb said, slapping him again. The fisherman's heavy eyelids fluttered, but he struggled to open them. He kept moaning something. Caleb supposed might have been the name of his wife. You've lost a lot of blood, said Caleb, stating the obvious because he didn't know what else to do. The fisherman's eyes finally opened, and Caleb saw the consciousness return as his pupils narrowed. I didn't tell you, he said, on the boat. I wanted to say... Say what, begged Caleb. What did you want to say? You never listen. Too hurt. Don't have the heart. I'm listening, Caleb cried. He took the fisherman's hand and leaned in toward his face. What is it? Stop making yourself sick. Your burden, it's not a punishment. You have been chosen. The fisherman's chest flinched in an attempt to cough that ended in a pitiful clicking sound in the back of his throat. Stop. Stop eating guts and fish heads and speak. The burden, it won't be lifted till you speak. Caleb watched the fisherman's eyes. The lids began to close. His throat ached when he looked at the fisherman, but he kept watching. He had a wife. Did he have kids? Caleb had no idea. Speak, said the fisherman. Speak and be free. The fisherman sucked in a final broken breath and died. Caleb followed the shore to the docks and found the bucket of fish parts on the wooden boards where the fisherman left it. He picked it up and tossed the vile contents into the sea. He followed the well-worn path from the docks to the city. His clothes, what was left of them, were still wet. He sloshed along the way beside the city wall until he reached the gates and stopped. Between the gates he saw the priest standing in the courtyard dressed in his clean, sacred garments. Caleb thought about his own tattered rags. What a contrast they made. The priest in his honorable robes and Caleb in his filthy tunic, damp with seawater and the blood of his friend. Caleb took another step in the direction of his house and stopped again. He stared at the courtyard between the gates, the priest, and the platform on which the elders stood when they ruled against the farmer the day before. As he stood there, he felt the burden within him uncoil as it had on the boat the night before. Caleb no longer felt like fighting it. Maybe he had been wrong to drug it, to cage it within him, and deny its freedom. Who deserved freedom more, the burden or the priest? Caleb realized that by imprisoning the truth, he set the priest free to abuse the weak and manipulate the powerful. Caleb entered the gates. The priest saw him approach and said, well, look who's here, the troublemaker. I may be trouble, priest, but I am not the one who is making it. I thought I told you to stay out, said the priest, studying the soggy, exhausted figure before him. What's with you, anyway? Are you wet? Where have you been? What are you up to? Caleb ignored the priest and walked toward the platform within the gates. He felt the burden slowly wake and stretch from its long hibernation. He felt it loosen and then writhe within him. Go home, troublemaker. We don't need your meddling here. I've told you before, the king doesn't want you filling the people's heads with your delusions and dreams. 
Caleb looked around and saw the priests and the elders preparing their dockets for another day of stealing houses and enslaving men, women, and children. He felt warm and light. Something rose inside him. Caleb, need I remind you what happens to troublemakers around here? Has it been so long since your last beating that you've already forgotten? Caleb surveyed the courtyard and its surroundings. So many injustices had occurred here. He saw an old woman with a basket of fruit at her feet. She pleaded with her eyes to no one. He saw a dirty child, half-clothed, running to a girl who was barely sixteen with a baby in her arms. The burden was slipping from his relaxing grasp. Caleb stepped onto the platform. Caleb! I saw a tower holding up the world, shouted Caleb. Thank you for listening to Burdens. For more information, visit DrewKaiser.com. Thank you.